Hey listeners, it's Tom Haberstroh here and I have some breaking news. The Haberstroh Show is no longer. It is now called The Haber Show. The people have spoken. I put up a Twitter poll to decide this once and for all and the new name of the podcast is The Haber Show. 83% of you decided, yeah, we're done with the Haberstroh Show thing. Why don't you just sandwich it together? The Haber Show. Be a little bit more economical with that. Okay. We did it. So our guest today is my good friend, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. He covers the Warriors and the NBA for The Athletic. We used to work together at ESPN. He's a good friend of mine. He makes gambling picks at his recurring series called Strauss versus the House, and he's doing quite well. So if you're into that sort of thing, you might want to read it. We're going to talk about gambling trends, the life as an NBA spy, and why Steph Curry does not shoot 15 three-pointers a game, even if the data, my data, says he should. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Haber Show podcast, and go tell your friends about it. All right, without further ado, on to the Haber Show. Ethan, how are you, man? I'm doing great, man. It's daddy daycare week for me, so I'm not leaving the house, but I have a, a wonderful son, as you have a wonderful daughter. And so it's been interesting trying to combine the NBA consumption and production uh, with balancing fatherhood duties. But it's it's a lot of fun, too. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, everybody. No, you're not supposed to throw the Merry Christmas after that. You're just supposed to say happy holidays. Oh, you're supposed to the, the, the general. Because now I, you're I unbalanced. Know. Now you're now you're you're skewing. <laughs> I guess I am skewing. I, I, the whole I, point I, of saying happy ho- happy holidays is that you're not uh, happy holidays is for you and your love of craft brewing. Yes. I think that's a whole different that's a whole different thing right there. Yes, it's always sad when my wife's like, uh, "Hey, I'm going out to grab uh, run some errands. Do you need any Christmas beer?" <laughs> like that's Christmas. that's in, like not like CVS. You know, you need me to pick up something at CVS. It's you need me to go pick up alcohol for you. <laughs> so that's uh, that's where I'm at right now. Well, Ethan, thank you for joining me on the first edition of the podcast, as it's known, the Haber Show. Mm. So it was originally a poor decision by me to call it the Haberstroh Show, and then there was an onslaught, a vocal minority. Or maybe a vocal majority, Ethan, on Twitter saying, how dare you? How dare you not call it the Haber Show? So we went back to the drawing board. I went to the legal team at NBC and they came back and said, it's a terrible name, but we okay it. (laughs) I just picture it like the scene in the social network with Justin Timberlake telling the Zuckerberg character to remove the the from Facebook. It just had to happen. It's cleaner. I like it. I mentioned this on Instagram where now if I'm going to be at customs, I'm going to panic because I'm going to say my last name wrong. I'm going to be like, yeah, it's it's uh, Thomas Habershow. I mean, <laughs> no, my last name is not Habershow. It's ha- Haberstrow. Oh, no. Oh, no. What's my birthday? Oh, no. What's my address? Oh, my God. I don't think I think this is a very uh, niche issue for you. I, I, I just don't see this happening that often. And if I do see it happening, I, I also just see the customs official kind of grunting and not caring and just stamping the passport and, yeah. uh, and, and not carried at all. Why are you inside your head? What's going on there, son? I don't know. I, you know, I had an urge to maybe name my son Levi, by the way, which was just <laughs> promptly shot down. It was promptly shot down. And Levi's my just. My justification is that it would just be a good icebreaker in any situation where he was introducing himself to people. As long as he didn't resent it too much, he could go, oh, yes, yes, I am great grandfather. And you could mess around with it or you go, no, but, you know, here's a story about I, I, I just liked it as an icebreaker uh, opportunity. But it was it was shot down. Yeah, well, I think that you're projecting your own necessity for an icebreaker in life. Is that what it is? Is you're like, it I'm might gonna... be, a lot of things are heritable. So he might have the same issue I do at these 
these functions. So I, I was just looking out for the guy. But you know what? You don't want to take risks when it comes to the name of your child. So I, I understood it and I accepted it. So speaking of risks, you are at The Athletic now. Not that's a risky move, but you're an expert in gambling risk now because you're writing about picks and the risks of those picks and the risks of believing in LeBron James too much or believing in the road team too much. And you're mm. actually become, in short order, kind of an expert in the NBA's uh, weird world of gambling and road life all in like two months. I mean, I don't know if uh, to quote Charles Barkley, God's the only expert, Kenny. I, I, I don't know <laughs> if I would say expert necessarily, but I feel like I am learning. I feel like I'm learning things from trying this and you learn by doing and I keep getting burned by picking the road team. That's not a lesson I actually apply to my picks because it just always looks so tantalizing. You can see that one team is better than the other team and the idea of uh, the lesser team's home quirkiness helping them just seems so abstract that it just repeatedly keeps burning me and I think that you have identified that it has been a market inefficiency at least for a stretch. The the home dogs uh, have been doing pretty well I believe. Yes, yes. Uh, the home dogs have, have done pretty well. And it wasn't always the case. I remember when I wrote about the home court advantage disappearing because of Tinder, the Tinderization of the NBA, where NBA players were getting more sleep on the road because they're uh, Uber for um, how do I want? How do I how should I say you, you're, you're good so, at vocabulary? Uh, I think the term you're looking for is sex. Oh, yes. Uh, sex. Uh, the the Uber for sex was making the nightlife a lot more efficient. So like speaking of Charles Barkley, who was uh, I think got in trouble one year for throwing a dude out a bar window the night before a game. You didn't have to go to the bar all night to find a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whoever it is. You don't have to do that. You don't. So now it's been a few years since Tinder was around and you could get off the plane, go straight to your hotel and not have to go out till three in the morning. And from what I gathered around the NBA was just guys are being um, cleaner on the road in the sense they're not going out as much and they're having a much more acute sense of health and recovery and all that stuff. And the visitor's disadvantage was disappearing, but not so much anymore. I think the yeah. uh, the home team has come roaring back. Well, this is classic Jurassic Park. Life will find a way. Now that they've discovered the ease of Tinder, maybe they're setting up multiple Tinder dates and that is then oh. uh, removing the advantage and making them tired. And it's not so much more efficient than uh, going to the bar and drinking and whatnot. At least that's my crazy theory. It's kind of like you you drink too many Diet Cokes. Mm. You're like, ooh, Diet Coke is good for you, so I'm just going to drink Diet Coke instead of water. There's no free lunch in nature. You know, I, I, I just think that home court advantage has to be. And I like that it exists. It's a funny function of the NBA. I like that there's this quirk where the uh, the home fans get rewarded more often and there's just an extra level of difficulty. And I like that it exists more in the NBA than I'm assuming it does in hockey and in baseball. I, I don't think it's as pronounced in those sports. I like that it exists in the NBA to a significant degree. So how do you feel about gambling in the NBA? Now, you don't have any money. You don't have any actual scratch on mm. these games. The House versus Strauss. Is... Well, this is like the Haber show because it's Strauss versus the House oh, because no. I figured it's me versus the House. But I already have a House of Strauss podcast. <laughs> so I have done something similar to you where maybe I should have just gone. I feel like Dr. Seuss is writing a story for you right now. <laughs> like Dr. Seuss, is he still alive? I feel like he's not. No, I think he passed a long time ago. Shout out San Diego. Shout out La Jolla. Well, this is a good question. This is the big number is when did Dr. Seuss die? But uh <laughs> 1994. No, um, I I just made that up. But you have a new column. Uh, it's it's Tom. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. What? He died in 1991. Is he still alive? <laughs> what? I mean, 
<laughs> Too soon. He's alive in my heart because I still read his books to Madeline. So <laughs> I've tried to. I'm just. How many years ago? 1991. That's. Uh... <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, What's the scoreboard right now? You versus the house. I think I'm at 56 percent. I would need to look at it. I'm nine games over 500 and I think around 56 and nearing that 100 pick mark and had a bit of a rough amends uh, day, I would call it for my uh, picks yesterday where I went one and two and two road teams I picked. So I might not be again learning my lesson. But for me, you know, you're going to lose a lot, obviously doing this, even if you're doing OK. And I can live with it if I at least know why I, I picked what I picked. If I know Is it why exhausting. I um, a little bit. Allie, my wife, says it, it occupies a little too much space <laughs> in my brain and my uh, my equilibrium. I try to take it with equanimity when I'm watching it, though, because I don't want to overreact or start hating a certain team or not like a certain performance. I was enjoying vintage Derrick Rose last night, even though I picked the Pistons over the, the Wolves. And I just said to myself, OK, whatever happens, I just wanted to enjoy this and, uh, and, and, and recognize that I'm watching a good game. Now, that one's interesting. And maybe I shouldn't be giving away. Uh, certain tendencies, but I like this stuff. That game represents the seventh in a row out of seven games in, in both their careers where Andre Drummond's team has beaten Carl Anthony Towns's team. I thought that was a pretty interesting Ooh. stat. And, and it's not you, like the Pistons are juggernauts either. No. So that's it's that's why it's surprising. And if you look at their stats, Towns stats are not that great. So even though Drummond might be one of those style over substance or you think he's better because he's just so athletic that he actually is, it seems like in that matchup, he really pushes Carl Anthony Towns around. So are you just always skimming for those weird, quirky matchup advantages? Exactly. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Last night I picked the Kings hosting the Thunder. That was a home team. And the thinking behind that was that the Thunder have this amazing defense, but it's a little vulnerable in transition. I think it's only the 15th best in transition, according to Clean the Glass. And that's because Steven Adams is not exactly a burner. So that's all the Kings do is push the ball. I think that that didn't go so well. And I think maybe I learned the value of uh, Shumpert and Bogdanovich, who are both out for the Kings. I just think that those two losses were too significant. Plus, Paul George was just absolutely brilliant, as was Adams, the aforementioned Adams. But then again, Again, that is a pick where I think that I made the wrong call, but I know why I did what I did and whatever happens, happens. You know, it's funny. I was listening to JJ Reddick's podcast on The Ringer recently to uh, study up on uh, on Reddick for something I'm doing with him. He mentioned that in April when he was doing a mailbag, he mentioned that coaches are really into the line, the spread. Like, oh, yeah. Like the, it's the, the coaches. Thing, it's the first thing brought up in every coach's meeting. That's, and it's not something that I paid attention to in Miami when I was covering the Heat or nationally when I was at ESPN. I just never really paid too much attention to the spread. But yet coaches seem to be addicted to that. Yeah, well, they're often a little bit obsessed with numbers, obsessed with stats, and it's also a reflection on what the expectations are for them. And coaches actually have to worry about the overall team performance more so than players who are, are more keyed on the uh, individual performance. So it's the conversation starter. They all saunter in. This is as told to me. They all saunter into the coaches meeting mm -hmm. and somebody goes saunter. There's no one, there's no one like sprinting. It's just sauntering. Yeah, yeah. No, these are coaches. These are they're not moving. Uh, they're not moving especially quickly they all trudge in okay. leery eyed into the coaches meeting and somebody says so what's the line tonight and somebody else goes oh we're you know we're we're, we're plus five really that's what they that's that's how it generally goes and then it's it's just kind of a uh, an icebreaker a levi strauss 
It's definitely a Levi Strauss. And it just uh, maybe it breaks up the tension a little bit in the room, but it is something that they obsess over. And I don't think players track the line so much. I've had players ask me what the line is and the shock in reaction to what I tell them often to me shows that they're not really paying too much attention to this stuff. <laughs> well, uh, this is a good segue because uh, your latest story uh, feature on the road with an NBA spy, the grinding work and lifestyle of an advanced scout talks about this very thing, which is there's these different universes in the NBA landscape. There are these people who just don't care about the final scoreboard. They don't care about the spread. They don't care about who's got a better matchup than that team. These guys are called advanced scouts or NBA scouts, and you call them NBA spies in your story. And it's it's such a an awesome read. I have so much joy, just straight up like get delight when I read your stories because your vocabulary is fantastic. Your pacing is great. And you'd think that I'm offering a, a, an athletic subscription like discount here. Here, but I'm not. I'm just saying it's a very good story. And I actually got a chance on one of your road trips with the scout is I got to kind of see what life was like on the road. And you brought the reader into that universe and showed that these scouts don't care about the scoreboard. All they care about is whether they get the plays right. Mm. And it's yeah. just such a bizarre quirk in the NBA that you can have no regard for the scoreboard. And after the game, you mentioned someone will be like, hey, a great game by the Lakers. And the scouts just like, oh, did they win? Yeah. Yeah. And he, he might be working for the Lakers. Like it's a bizarre compartmentalization and not just a compartmentalization away from the team and what the team is doing. But in terms of time, he lives just in the immediate future where he is always watching the uh, kind of three games ahead to the opponent who's going to be three games ahead. And that's all he's focused on. That's all he's obsessing over. And by the time his team plays that opponent, he's already three games ahead, focused on the next opponent. And he's not even aware that that game is going on and he's on the road he's never in the same place as his team and so a lot of people on the team might not even know who he is and yet I do think that he performs uh, an important function and something I didn't really write about maybe because it's hard to put a number to it is how valuable is this? There's some debate over that. Yeah. General managers tend to think, no, it's the politics of the NBA. General managers, as the scout says in the article, we can't do anything to make them look good. They look good from making this big personnel move, but the coaches value what the scouts do. So there's this debate over how much it matters. I just wish we could run some sort of experiment where we could see a team with no advanced scouting one season versus having a good advanced scout and just see what the difference would be. Because theoretically, this is important that this is what they are doing doing and walkthrough, by the way, guys, if you ever heard of walkthrough and shoot around the preparations they're doing are for the most commonly run plays by the other team and just knowing what to do for those plays. And I think that teams would be far worse if they weren't doing that or if they were getting the wrong information. How many games is that worth? I don't know. Are these scouts like comfort food for coaches where even though we know it's not necessarily the best thing for you to focus so much on the advanced scout or the scouting report and the plays, it kind of makes you feel good about like it makes mm -hmm. you feel pretty prepared. Yeah, you want. And also there's this sense of somebody's out there. I asked a scout about how close he was to or how the coach felt about him. And he said he just knows that I'm out there busting my ass for him on the road all the time. And I think there's that level of loyalty, too, where this guy is making himself miserable. He's living this monastic <laughs> life of solitude. Sounds like fraternity life. It's just like <laughs> like a brother just yelling at a pledge like I, I love you, buddy, because you're just you're going through the sewage. 
<laughs> okay, pledges. <laughs> I want all of you to cut film for me on the <laughs> opponent's baseline and sideline out of bounds. Do it now, pledge. Do it. So good. It's so good. And there's a little like I remember pledge driving where I would have to <laughs> drive around and I'm just hearing like Steve Curry. Hey, pledge. <laughs> Go to this gym. Scout this player now. Bows and toes. Um, but there is a lot of pride in doing something that most people just couldn't do. There are very few NBA players who go on to be advanced scouts when they're trying to get back in the league. It's just they don't want it. Now, there were a few that were told to me. They aren't even guys that I think most of the listeners would have heard of, but it's just not something most human beings can do. I mean, we should give a sense of the scope of it. I delved into it with my first general article on advanced scouts, but not so much in the second one. And I think it's something that maybe if I say it, it just feels like it's a number and and people don't really think about it. But the advanced scouts attend upwards of 150 road games in a season. And I say upwards because you can get to that 160 range. You can get more than that. You just think about the amount of travel that requires. These are all road games. Like on average, they might get two days in the same place. Like, yeah, in a 365 day calendar year. Yeah. It's, on average, you're sleeping in the same bed, what, like once or twice consecutively in a month? It's just it's wild. Yeah, it's it's completely insane. And there are stretches where they'll do 13 games and 13 nights. I can't even fathom what that must be like. My head was spinning. I did six and seven and it, <laughs> it it's just completely disorienting. And I think the way that they do it is by this. Uh, method that we were talking about earlier, which is just intensive compartmentalization. They're in the arena. They don't even know who's winning the game. They are just focused on what they need to focus on. What plays are both coaches uh, yelling out and are they new charting that down? And then everything with the travel just revolves around convenience with very little regard to enjoying the city or checking the city out. It's just what public transportation do I need? What skyways do I go down? How do I maximize the efficiency? All the stuff you saw in Up in the Air is, is definitely an obsession of the advanced scout. Obsession of mine is whether Steph Curry is taking too few three-pointers. Boom. Oh, man. See, this is what I like, too, right here with Tom. Tom is very smart about I don't want to make it seem like it's a trick. It's not a trick. I think people learn through metaphor. And Tom is good at giving a term to things and and packaging the information. And I look, maybe you should be the one presenting it, but you've invented a term for a phase of Steph shooting and you've called it the third rack in reference to in three-point shooting competitions when they get that third rack. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so Steph Curry in 2013, before Steve Kerr took over, I wrote a story for ESPN arguing that because because he's so efficient from three-point land and he seems to be better as he goes along, he should be shooting not 7.7 three-pointers like he was averaging in 2013. He should be at at least 10. And people were like, you're crazy. 10 three-pointers? It's nuts. His his arms will fall off. One of those shots will poke an eye out. He'll kill the game of basketball. Um, (laughs) And sure enough, a couple years later, he wins some MVPs. I'm going to take full credit over that. Uh, You can take Uh full credit because you predicted it, but I'm going to do it as well. No credit. I don't know where the the pizza pie slices up. Yeah, I think about 5% to Steph, you know, maybe 5%, maybe 6 if we're feeling generous. But you were saying. But, you know, knowing Steph, and and I think you pointed out too, is uh, he's hotter 
in fourth quarters. He seems to get better as the season goes on. And then I looked into all the thousands of shots. I downloaded it into a spreadsheet, ran some formulas and ran an algorithm in Excel and determined that on his first rack, meaning the first five three pointers that he takes a game, he shoots 43% on the second rack of three pointers, meaning the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth and 10th three pointers of a game. He shoots 43%. But on that fifth rack. So these are the ones at the end of games. He's either feeling it or the defense is giving him that shot. For whatever reason, he shoots 49% on threes on the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th three-pointer. And that's uh, the big number this week. And I got to imagine, I had this feeling as soon as I posted it, Steve Kerr didn't like me very much. Mm. I know that you know Steve a little bit. Did he talk to you about this? Did he? Uh, did I'm he afraid to. This? I'm afraid to. Because I feel like he is one of the pioneers of the three-point shot in the sense of letting Steph. I don't know if he let him so much that Steph pushed the envelope, but mm. the Warriors are almost leading the league in mid-range jumpers this season. And I feel like there's this kind of push and pull between him and Steph where the full unfiltered Steph probably would like to shoot 23 pointers a game, but it might mm. not fit in the paradigm that Steve Kerr envisions for his team. I'm not sure. It just seems that there are some other considerations right now. And the more three Steph shoots, well, this might be a different conversation. The fewer uh, mid range contested uh, offense, stagnant jumpers that Clay Thompson might be shooting. So before we get to that, I think what's interesting about this is that people probably responded. Well, well, Dove, he's on fire. Then the 10th and 11th and 12th threes are going to be games where he's really feeling it but theoretically there might not even be a hot hand theory or that might not be valid so that would be interesting also most players do not show this most players shoot worse in fourth quarter so your theory about you know Steph Curry shooting better because he's hot well then he might end up being average because you tend to tire out so it's interesting that Steph is this bizarre player who might get better as he gets tired that doesn't make a lot of sense I mean I'm just looking at the NBA season in many ways is an erosion process where people come in healthy and they get worse as the injuries pile on and they get dinged up but you know Steph pre to post all-star for his career shoots 42.8 percent from three before the all-star break after the all-star break 45.9 and it's just that is significant that's not insignificant that is significant yeah for for as many threes as he's shooting right it's very odd (laughs) it's a that's a very strange that's a very strange dynamic and i don't even know what to explain it with i'm not sure maybe that he thinks less and he's somebody who has a certain zen about him and if he's not really thinking about it then then maybe i I'm, i'm struggling to come up with theories so who would push back the most here? Do you think it's Ron Adams? Do you think it's Steve Kerr? Do you think it's Kevin Durant? Do you think it's Clay Thompson? Like if if Steph Curry tomorrow said, that's it, I watched the big number, I'm averaging 15 three-pointers, who is going to be the most like bummed out about that besides the opponents who are like, damn it. <laughs> well, it's it's definitely not going to be Andy Liu and, and Samus Fendiari, I can tell you that much, <laughs> uh, of, of Warriors Twitter, hashtag Steph better fame. I really like what's stopping What's stopping it from happening? I just convention might be Steph. I think Steph might be the one stopping it from happening because he does want to set the table for his teammates and he wants to be a good teammate. And I think that he became actualized in this way when he had that huge game in Madison Square Garden and that allowed him the freedom to take some of these tougher shots because I think he might have been without that 
huge earned boost of credibility in that game, just reluctant to break outside the bounds of how the team should go. And so I think it would be Steph. I mean, to a certain extent, it would be Steve. But I think Steve's issue is just dribbling. I think that the enemy with Steve is dribbling. Kerr, if Kerrism is a religion, it is anti-dribbling. So if Steph is setting up a lot of those threes by dribbling the clock out, then he doesn't want that. As to whether he would be mad when Steph uh, one dribble pull up uh, from 30 on a few possessions, I'm not I'm not sure that would really bother him so much. I thought it was fascinating looking at the numbers and just seeing the 50s there, the 11th shot, like 52 percent, 12 shot, 51 percent. And I was like, man, there might be something to this. The thir- what if I divide it into three racks and then boom, it was just it just jumped off the page. And I wonder in analytics, we have so much information out there, but we don't really have like who gets hot. You know, like who has the biggest difference in their shooting percentages, depending on whether they make the first shot or miss the first shot. And I feel like that's another realm of gambling is like I would have a theory if I just off the top of my head. I wouldn't be surprised if we looked into that. And the biggest difference was for bigs because bigs tend to have less confidence. And this is just based on observation where when I'm looking for tendencies in the gambling column, I've just noticed that certain bigs own other bigs and it's such a pronounced ownage. And I think part of that is because if you're a big guy in the NBA, you might not have the kind of fight that you would probably have if you were a smaller guy. You had to overcome a lot of doubts as Steph Curry did. And they're just going to the smaller guys will just keep shooting and they'll just keep going. They, you know, somebody might be good at defending them. I don't know if they'll buy that premise with bigs. It just seems to be, Oh, this didn't go well. The first two possessions I'm checked out the rest of the game, very subjective, but it is something that I'm noticing and something I try to factor in. So Roy Hibbert, funny, you should mention that I did a study in 2014, Roy Hibbert, after he makes or misses his first shot in a playoff game, when he makes his first shot, he shoots 53% from the floor, the rest of the game. And the Pacers were seven and four in those games. If he missed his first shot on the floor, after that he shot 22 percent from the floor and the Pacers were two and four in those games so you're not off base when it comes to Roy Hibbert and his ability to come back from a miss or a make it's it's fascinating that I think bigs especially maybe defensive minded bigs because then you're in your head about like ooh, missed that first shot I'm not getting the ball again it's this like first impression thing that they go through yeah I, I think there could be something to that and I guess there's nothing as far as gambling that could help that could well, really in-game help gambling it. i mean if yeah if, i guess oh that's an it see look at look at us collaborating oh yeah That'd be <laughs> you know you just see the big guy misses for a shot and then you immediately take a bet on the over under for for points he would score in the game that would be an interesting strategy i'm not even sure how to do or where to go for for that specific of a bet because what frustrates me sometimes is that i'll get the matchup right i'll be correct about the matchup i'll be correct last night that donovan mitchell really struggles against the warriors because of the way their defense is set up but you know you win the battle and you lose the war because there are all these other factors in the game yeah it's um i think in in philadelphia you could go to a game in a couple months and be able to place in-game legal bets on the 76ers game on Mm. your phone and that's pretty the PASPA was reversed in May and six months later, we're already talking about going to NBA games and being able to place in-game wagers. And the interesting thing is the NBA has been fighting in the courts to be able to have 
you know, uh, discretion on which prop bets are being offered because they don't want players, you know, to be manipulated or to somehow have control in game. If someone's like, hey, if you miss your first free throw, like I I got thirty thousand dollars with your name on it, that Mm. stuff like the league doesn't want any part of that, it seems. But also bookmakers don't like that's the funny thing about a lot of this back and forth between the league and bookmakers in the courts is they have the same interests. like bookmakers do not like fixed games or they do not like Mm. any sort of players having certain edges or things are not on the level the same deal is with the league and so they actually have the same incentives here and so i think that's what's so fascinating about and we could talk a whole nother this is a more abstract question and it's something that was brought up to me by an agent who has given me a lot of guff we'll say about the gambling column and it was the question of is this what you're trying to do, the league or me specifically, when the love of the game is no longer so intrinsic oh, and so no. so obvious? Don't, what? don't do this. No, that, I just that, that seems like a very Clint Eastwood get off my lawn thing. No, I, I do wonder about that if this is in a way a reaction to the NBA regular season being a little bit valueless. You yourself were making the point. Okay. I agree with it. Oh, I thought I thought the whole like um, that players don't love the game or that. No, no, fan- no, no, no. I don't mean it in that okay. treakly, schmaltzy, maudlin way. I mean it in the Gotta way get my of dictionary out for those words. Saccharin. Uh, <laughs> additionally, I'd add that as well. I mean it more in the sense of. The NBA regular season, people are wise to it. They know that it doesn't matter so much. They know that this isn't such a big game on a on a Tuesday night in January. So is this what the league is trying to do to sort of gussy up a little interest and almost artificially gin up a little interest? And it might seem like the forefront of something and the beginning, but maybe it's the beginning of the end. Maybe it's a little bit like with football where fantasy ginned up a lot of interest in the NFL, but now it seems like interest overall is a bit on the wane. Look, I'm just submitting that one to the table and you can take it or leave it. I think there was a stat like in the press release. Yes, in the press release, according to the NBA, participants in NBA in-play contests with FanDuel watch an NBA game on average 56% longer than viewers who are not playing the game. To gin up interest, there's the stat, is that people who have action on the game watch the game 56% longer and stay with the game than viewers I, who don't have any scratch on the it, game. I mean, it is a magic trick. I, the idea that I was watching Wizards-Hawks, just that, that's not a game that... <laughs> engrossed in... in engrossed, yeah, and, and frustrated and angry at Tony Brothers. I mean, this is not something that I would be <laughs> doing otherwise had I not had a pick. That was one where I, where I didn't do so well and I, I think made a mistake, but it is this crazy magic trick that gives you the feeling for me it's kind of it's interesting because it recaptures a feeling of fandom that i don't have anymore and that i've tried to suppress and now all of a sudden i'm in touch with this thing that fans are in touch with where i'm living and dying with whether the shots go in Mm. and so to me it's almost a way of renting that feeling for a bunch of teams and I think it, it gets spread out enough where I, I don't think it, it clouds objectivity too much because I might bet on one team one week and then I'll, you know, bet against them the other you week. Bet, bet on this team over here. And then <laughs> that's the Raven Ritter voice. And when I say bet, I mean pick. But yeah, you know, you pop it over here, you pop it over there. In a way, it's almost like a little bit of a virtual reality experience for me. It's almost uh, it's, it's almost a way around it where I can rent a little fandom. So instead of the currency of money, you're operating in the currency of just credibility. Like you feel like if you get these picks right, you're almost, you're seeing something that you didn't see before. 
Yeah, I, I, I want to win. It's fun to win. And losing also uh, isn't so fun, but it's a feeling. And I think that a lot of people are in it for feelings. I think losing is the second best feeling. It provides a little bit of uh, a rush. It provides a little bit of clarity. I, I, I think that it's better to feel something than not feel anything at all if we're getting very philosophical about it. But I think it also teaches me things. I think it, it makes you hone in on why is this happening? And you just you just learn more. You learn more from what the local announcers are talking about and what, what they're seeing as well if they're good. I mean, not all of them are good, certainly. And so I think that it's been a successful endeavor for me in that way. I might eventually have to sunset it, though, just because I need to write longer articles. And so and, and, it, and, it, I, and it is not the most popular activity in my house. I will add that as well. <laughs> well, uh, Ethan, on that note, uh, go back to your family. Thank you so much for spending the time with me me on a weekday with uh with asher asleep madeline is just waking up so um we do have to end things here but if you are interested in ethan's writing his musings his picks go follow him at sherwood strauss on twitter and also go catch his work at the athletic and go follow him what you have a you have an instagram i'm sure but that's probably for more personal i'm not like you tom you're an expert instagrammer i mean you you're like a a fish in water with that medium i mean you can follow me on instagram you'll see some sous vides but you gotta gotta (laughs) follow you you gotta follow tom's instagram i think that's where it's at so go follow ethan strauss he is a good friend of mine uh we used to work together at espn and uh i love you man what uh, by the way, just ruining you, you sticky the landing. I, I do enjoy when I'm watching the NBC Sports Channel, seeing them promote your work. Not that I'm bitter about anything that ever happened in the past. And I'm happy for every opportunity I ever had. <laughs> but it's just interesting to see um, a, a TV company promoting the work of their of their writers. It's just very interesting oh, to yes. see that. It's just very interesting. Oh, it's, it's oh, a great thing. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> You can get and, and with that, Ethan Strauss, I, uh, I'll see you around these parts, uh, hopefully with a not, without an advanced scout present, because that means you're bleary eyed and delirious and you don't really know who I am. So uh, enjoy your weekend. And thanks to everyone for listening to the Haber Show podcast um, with Ethan Strauss. Thank you so much. I apologize for grabbing you by the lapels and demanding uh, to know whether you still thought I had a soul. Okay. Thank you, Tom. All right. Ethan, have a good one, man. All right, my friends. Thanks for listening to that episode. And don't forget to rate and review. Go check out Ethan Strauss's work at The Athletic, but also download the My Teams app to get all your NBC Sports regional intel. You'll find my work there and the work of all of our experts on your teams. Till next time on The Haber Show.